Well, it is a great joy to be with you today and a humbling honor. The words that kept coming to mind this morning as I entered the campus were the words of an old Isaac Watts hymn where he asked, Lord, why was I a guest? And so it's very humbling to me to be here in your midst as you celebrate 50 years of the Lord's faithfulness to you and by grace, your faithfulness to him and to one another. You are an answer to Christ's high priestly prayer in John 17 of your unity together in Christ and for the gospel, a unity that reflects the unity of our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I give thanks and praise uh, for the privilege of being with you today. And thank you so much for your hospitality to my family and me and for ministering to me, a choir and the rest of you. Um, We're so thankful to be here. Now, your pastors have asked me to preach on the theme of Southern Presbyterianism. In other words, the heritage and history of Presbyterianism in the Southern United States. And they've told me, especially Bruce, told me to take my time. So you can blame him. You can blame him if it goes a little long. Um, It's always good to have a scapegoat. That's a biblical gospel principle, the scapegoat. So I'm on solid ground there. But when we typically think of the history of Southern Presbyterianism, a history I know that you're thankful to be a part of, a heritage I know that you're thankful to be a part of, and a heritage that we celebrate today as we celebrate your 50 years as a Presbyterian church in the South, we typically think of some more well-known figures from the 19th century. And I'm going to talk a little bit about two of them. Benjamin Morgan Palmer, whom I know is dear, uh, near and dear to your senior minister's heart. Uh, his own scholarship, his PhD dissertation, uh, as you probably know, is on Benjamin Morgan Palmer. And if you haven't read it, pester him to give you a copy so you can read it. When I was first starting my PhD work, I read his dissertation. We were on vacation down at the Outer Banks. And when you're working on a PhD, that's what you do. You take other PhDs with you to read on vacation. And his, above any other I read, actually ministered to my heart and uh, inspired uh, my own research. So I'm going to talk about James uh, Benjamin Morgan Palmer and James Henley Thornwell, uh, both Carolinians. I wish I could say they were North Carolinians, but they were South Carolinians. And I'm going to talk about two of the foundational truths that they emphasized in their ministries and how we can interpret their lives and ministries today in a way that helps us in our own walks with Jesus. Our New Testament reading is one that reflects the ethos of their ministries uh, and one that is appropriate, I think, as we celebrate uh, Trinity Presbyterian Church and your 50 years and as we celebrate Reformation Day and the, the great gospel of grace uh, that we remember today. St. Paul's Trinitarian benediction in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 14, where St. Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 
the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's look to our God once again in prayer. Our loving Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this happy day. May our hearts be happy in your Son. To that end, speak to us afresh by your Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, assuring us of your Son's grace, his shed blood that washes away all our sins, and of your amazing, relentless, fatherly love. Through Christ your Son, we pray. Amen. Well, the Southern Presbyterian leaders that I want to mention this morning emphasize two cardinal, essential doctrines of the Christian faith, namely the Trinity and grace. In the first place, they emphasize the doctrine of the Trinity. Many of the Southern Presbyterians in the 19th century were known for their Catholic spirit. In other words, their emphasis on the essentials of the Christian faith. Yes, they had their distinctives and yes, they debated them from time to time, but those debates were typically relegated to theological journals and church courts. What they emphasized in their personal lives, what fueled their personal lives and their pulpit ministries were the essential truths of the Christian faith. Those truths that make Christianity Christian. Uh, those truths that we confessed earlier from the Apostles' Creed. Uh, they were not like the man that you may have heard about who was walking across a bridge and saw that another man was about, uh, was contemplating jumping off of it and trying to think of some way to talk him down. The man asked the jumper, so are you a Christian, a Hindu, a Jew, or what? You know, bring up a non-controversial topic like religion. That's, that's what he thought he would do. The jumper replied, a Christian. The man said, small world, me too. Protestant, Roman Catholic, or Orthodox? The jumper answered, Protestant. The man replied, me too. What denomination? The jumper said, Baptist. The man replied, me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? The jumper replied, Northern Baptist. The man replied, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? The jumper replied, Northern Conservative Baptist. The man said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes region? Or Northern Conservative Baptist, Eastern region? The man replied, Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes region? The man replied, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes region, Council of 1879? <laughs> Or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. The man, the jumper replied, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. At which point, the man pushed him off the bridge and cried, <laughs> Die, heretic! <laughs> but don't worry, he survived and became a Presbyterian. So it's all good. It's all good. But the Presbyterians we're talking about today weren't like that. They weren't quite that... Bad. They were actually had a very sweet, humble, ecumenical, in the best sense of that word, spirit. They, they loved all their brothers and sisters in Christ 
and they were determined to win the culture for Christ. Not, not necessarily even for Presbyterianism per se, but win the culture for Christ. They were able to distinguish between essentials and non-essentials. And especially because they were seeking to counter an aggressive Unitarian movement. They emphasized the essential doctrine of the faith, the Holy Trinity. Unitarians had all but taken over New England by the middle of the 19th century. You know, Unitarianism, which is essentially modern day theological liberalism, said, you know, Jesus is not God in the flesh who's come to save us. Jesus was the greatest man to ever live, but he's not God in the flesh. We're not that bad that God had to come down here to save us by becoming one of us and shedding his blood for us. And so it's essentially theological moralism. And that had taken over New England, the Enlightenment, rationalism of the day. And so the Southern Presbyterians were determined to to counteract that Unitarian movement by emphasizing the Trinity. And that certainly was the case in the life of Benjamin Morgan Palmer who was originally from Charleston, South Carolina, who lived from 1818 to 1902. As my father in the faith, Dr. Douglas Kelly, once said to me about Palmer, he preached the big doctrines. The big doctrines. In fact, if you read Palmer's sermons, you find that he consistently brought his hearers back to the biggest doctrine of all, the Holy Trinity. He preached virtually every doctrine Trinitarianly. God was not an abstract idea or a proposition or a doctrinal box to be checked. God was loving father. Gracious son. Relational, gentle spirit. Sin was not. Merely the infraction of a written code, but rather a failure to love the adorable three, as Palmer referred to the three persons of the Trinity. The the three that are worthy of all of our adoration and praise. Sin was a spurning of the Father's love. Ingratitude for the Son's grace. Resistance to the Spirit's Spirit's heart-melting fellowship. Evangelism was an invitation to come home to the adopting love of the Father through the outstretched arms of the crucified Son by the gracious ministry of the Holy Spirit. And there are reasons why Palmer emphasized the Trinity so much. His own family, believe it or not, had been shaken by the increasingly popular Unitarian movement in Charleston. His uncle, Benjamin Morgan Palmer Sr., had pastored the Congregationalist Church, which had split when his associate minister became a Unitarian and started the Unitarian Church of Charleston. And then decades after the split, Members of the circular church noticed that Palmer Sr.'s daughter, well-known poet and hymn writer Mary Palmer, 
had stopped singing the doxology, that great Trinitarian anthem, had stopped singing the doxology on Sunday mornings. Now, I was watching, and every member of your choir sang the doxology this morning. They sang it with gusto, but Mary stopped singing the doxology. Why? Because she had come to disbelieve the Trinity. Can you imagine the heartbreak of, of her father and her family when she became ensnared in this movement in Charleston? She revealed that she'd become a Unitarian through the influence of Charleston's Unitarian minister, very famous man, a Harvard graduate. He actually wrote the, uh, the song that is still sung today at Harvard as their, as their university song, a man named Samuel Gilman and his wife, a very talented writer named Caroline. And Mary went on to write a book about her conversion. You can read it online, her conversion to Unitarianism called Letters Addressed to Relatives and Friends, chiefly in reply to arguments in support of the doctrine of the Trinity. In fact, biblical Unitarians, biblical Unitarians today, uh, still recommend her book as a clear articulation of what they believe. But here's what the Palmer family did, and this is an important lesson for us. Benjamin Morgan Palmer Jr., whom Mary referred to as Cousin Ben, along with the rest of the family, did not give up on Mary. They did not shun her or disown her. They loved her. They did not dismiss her. They listened. They did not hold grudges. They forgave her and prayed for her. In other words, they treated her the way that the triune God of grace had treated them. They even asked for her forgiveness where they had sinned against her. And you know what happened? After several years as a Unitarian, Mary came back to the true faith. And she ended up even marrying an evangelical minister. Look at what God can do. Give back the years the locusts have eaten. Through love and prayer and asking for forgiveness and extending forgiveness. So that was Palmer's family. And his ministerial context also led him to emphasize the Trinity. He pastored the First Presbyterian Church of New Orleans from 1856 until his death in 1902. And what is interesting about the church he pastored was that it was actually the second First Presbyterian Church of New Orleans. New Orleans. The first First Presbyterian Church of New Orleans, which was founded in 1818, in the year of Palmer's birth, became the first Unitarian Church of New Orleans in 1834 after its minister, a man named Theodore Clapp, became a Unitarian. Though the Presbytery deposed Reverend Clapp, the vast majority of the congregation had come to love him. So they voted to keep him and their church property, communion, silver, and all. So a tiny, beleaguered group of exiles. They sound somewhat familiar. A tiny, beleaguered group of exiles decided to make another go of it and planted the second First Presbyterian Church 
of New Orleans in 1834. But Clapp's pulpit continued to grow as the focal point of spiritual life in New Orleans, where attendance swelled to over a thousand every Sunday. So it was into that ministerial context that Palmer stepped in 1856. And Palmer had this this jovial personality. He was able to just connect with all kinds of people around town. And it wasn't long before the Unitarian, uh, many members of the Unitarian Church, including former Presbyterians, started coming to hear Palmer preach. After a morning service in May of 1857, Palmer wrote this in his diary. Hall filled completely with large attendance of Unitarians. How did he win them back? He patiently, prayerfully preached the grace, love, and fellowship of the triune God. Year after year. He did not beat people over the head with his opinions. Rather, he sought to be a channel of Trinitarian love. In a sermon titled Christ's Love to His People, he said this. And if, especially if you've never come to Christ before, if you've never rested in Jesus by faith for your salvation, listen to these words of Palmer and, and heed them today. He said, my dear unconverted friend. It is a great pleasure even though the thing be badly done to preach God's precious gospel to you. He was a humble man. You know that my habit is to woo you with the gospel's attractive voices rather than to hold up the glittering sword and hurl against you the anathemas of judgment. Would to heaven I had persuasion enough in my voice today to bring you to an acceptance of these immense privileges. Oh, that you with us could be made willing this day in the day of his power to hold communion with the father and with his son and with his eternal spirit. And to know as no other can teach you except the divine spirit himself. What is the love of Christ to the believer, which he compares to the father's love to himself. Well, many people were made willing by the power of the spirit. As a newspaper article put it after Palmer's death, the greater number of the members of the Unitarian Church returned to the fold of Presbyterianism through Dr. Palmer's exposition of the real principles of Presbyterianism. This revival was due to the wonderful influence and power exercised by Dr. Palmer for his great powers of mind and gentle heart in those terrible days of doubt and upheaval in the church when he first began to work in New Orleans, quietly yet surely drawing the wanderers back to the fold of their childhood. That's what God accomplished in New Orleans through 
Benjamin Morgan Palmer. And a similar work of the Trinity had taken place in South Carolina through James Henley Thornwell, who lived from 1812 to 1862. After Thornwell's father passed away when Thornwell was very young, his most influential father figure became a man named William Robbins, who was a prominent attorney in Sherall, South Carolina. If you, have you ever been to Sherall, South Carolina? It's the birthplace of the great jazz mu- musician Dizzy Gillespie. Big statue of him there in downtown. But that's where, that's where Thornwell was from. And this mentor of his, Robbins, had grown up in Massachusetts and was brought up, and you guessed it, the Unitarian faith. And so he influenced Thornwell in that direction. And Robbins was later converted to Trinitarianism, but before he was, he sent Thornwell to study under another Unitarian at the University of South Carolina, President Thomas Cooper, originally from England. And Thornwell was absolutely amazed by Cooper's intellect. And he said, that's my intellectual idol. I'm going to be a Unitarian, just like Dr. Cooper. Well, eventually, through the influence of a professor of theology, who was a Christian, Thornwell became a real Christian, a Trinitarian. And entered the ministry. And later on, through the influence of the Presbyterians in the state legislature, Thornwell became chaplain and then president of the, of the University of South Carolina. And his goal was to undo what Dr. Cooper had done by leading all these culture shapers in South Carolina in a Unitarian, liberal Direction And needless to say, the Holy Spirit blessed Thornwell's ministry as chaplain and then president. And many of the students were converted under his ministry. And I want to give you just one sample of the preaching that he delivered in the chapel services at the University of South Carolina. Several days out of the week. Now, you think about this in a state university, what he was about, what he was saying here. This is what he said to those young men. He said, the evidence, perhaps, upon which the large majority of Christians receive the doctrine of the Trinity is the spiritual experience of their own hearts. They have not studied isolated texts or collected together the names, titles and achievements which are ascribed throughout Scripture to each of the persons of the Godhead. But they have been conscious of their own moral necessities. They have admired the beauty and rejoiced in the fitness of those exquisite arrangements by which their greatest need has been relieved. They know because they have felt the love of the Father, the grace of the Son, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Well, the Lord blessed Thornwell and he literally helped turn the state back towards the true faith. In 1822, Thomas Jefferson, 
a disciple of Unitarian Joseph Priestley, and an orchestrator of the Southern Unitarian Movement, had written his friend, Harvard professor Benjamin Waterhouse, these words. This is what Thomas Jefferson said. I trust that there is not a young man now living in the United States who will not die a Unitarian. That's how optimistic they were about their cause. Well, of course, this vision, which was held by the vast majority of Unitarians in the early to mid-19th century, did not materialize in large measure due to the history and heritage that we celebrate today of Southern Presbyterians and other faithful Christians, but Southern Presbyterians like Palmer and Thornwell and how they stood for the Trinity in their day. So first, the doctrine of the Trinity and briefly, an emphasis on grace. As we've seen, the Southern Presbyterians did not present the Trinity as a doctrinal box to be checked or a cold mathematical formula to be solved. Instead, they knew and preached something that I've told my sons since they were very little. I very often will say this to my sons. I'll say, I love you and there's nothing you can do about it. They knew that in their hearts, that the triune God loved them and there was nothing they could do about it. They knew that they were sinners in need of grace. Thornwell, in his prayer journal, asked the Heavenly Father, he said, save me from a legal spirit. What a great prayer to pray. Save me from a legal spirit. In other words, don't let me be a Pharisee. Don't let me be a legalist. Let me rest in your grace alone. Now, when James Henley Thornwell is mentioned today, such sentiments are not often what first come to mind. Instead, it is Thornwell's participation in and defense of Southern slavery that have taken center stage. Especially in the last few years, the understandable questions have become, should we even speak of men like Thornwell and Palmer in any sort of positive way? Never mind the fact that they had faithful, tireless ministries to the slaves of their day seeing revivals among the slaves, but should we even speak of these men in any positive way, given the fact that they were men of their day in the South and participated in, and in some cases defended, Southern slavery. Given their positions on race and their defense of slavery, can't we just erase them from our spiritual heritage and remove them from our theological vocabulary. To do so is tempting, given the pressures that we may be under. In one sense, it's the easiest path forward. Let's just distance ourselves from them altogether. 
But the question we must ask is this. Is doing so Christian? Does it comport with the grace of the triune God of grace? In his excellent book titled Regrace, What the Shocking Beliefs of the Great Christians Can Teach Us Today, Frank Viola examines the the flawed views and lives of such stalwarts as C.S. Lewis, Jonathan Edwards, Martin Luther, and John Calvin. But his purpose is productive rather than punitive. He writes, the purpose of this book is not to lower these individuals in your eyes. It's actually the opposite. It's to show you that despite their strange and sometimes flawed thinking on some issues, God still used them. Mightily even. The lesson, of course, is that God uses his people in spite of their strange or erroneous perspectives. And since that's the case, let's have more grace whenever, whenever we disagree with each other. Friends, I believe this productive, gracious approach to church history and church life is what is needed regarding the Southern Presbyterians of the 19th century. This is not to downplay their racial sins. Instead, it is to say that we can learn from and even honor flawed saints who have come before us. Does not the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 teach us that? We should not put anyone on a pedestal. As Dr. Kelly likes to say, the hero of the Christian faith is none other than Jesus Christ. For in the words of John 3.31, he who is, is from above is above all. During their lifetimes and for years thereafter, southern leaders like Palmer and Thornwell were put on pedestals. Their flaws were reconstrued and defended, and the church was weakened in its witness because of it. So faithful scholarship and faithful Christianity involve avoiding the tendency towards idolatry of our leaders, past and present, on the one hand, and cancellation of them because of their flaws, perceived and real, on the other. Faithful scholarship and faithful Christianity involve honest appraisals and critiques coupled with humility and grace. As Viola reminds us, every follower of Jesus is a rough draft. Over time, the great editor, the Holy Spirit, shapes our lives and views. But until we see the Lord... And we know, even as we are known, we are all in process. This is also true for the great Christians who have gone before us. Therefore, one of the mistakes we should guard against is the temptation to dismiss a person's entire contribution 
because they may hold or have held to ideas we find difficult to stomach. Navigating these waters is hard. We will not do so perfectly, but we must seek to do so in a way that comports with the gospel of triune grace. We must do so in a way that is honest about our flaws as the church, past and present, but also honest about the power of the triune God to redeem and work through fallen sinners for the good of all who bear his image. Today, I give thanks that the triune God of grace has worked through and continues to work through this church, that he has worked through this church in that way for 50 years. May he continue to do so until Christ comes again. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.